Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, let's read from Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to divide this up. We'll start with verses 3 to 4, and then I'll jump down to 12 to 13. Verses 3 to 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then jumping down to verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so this is a key chapter in the book of Romans. If we think of chapter 1 to 4, you know, he's kind of dealing with this false teacher. And then in chapter 5, he begins to describe his gospel. And then in chapter 6, then he describes the Christian life. And he begins then talking about baptism, that you've been baptized And baptism is a participation. It's a joining with Christ in his death, the imagery of dying, and in his resurrection. Because of this joining, our bodies, and the word here that he uses is body, our lives, or who we are, is made new. We can, he says, walk in newness of life. We can present ourselves to God as though we are alive from the dead. That is, we can begin to live the resurrection life now and thus present our bodies, ourselves, as instruments of righteousness to God. And the underlying shift really concerns then what happens to the body. And quite literally, immersion in immersion, the person, you know, is buried. If you only did the first half of baptism, you wouldn't survive. That is, it's a picture of dying, of being buried in the water, and then being raised up. And so it's not merely an imitation of Christ, but I believe what is being presented is a participation And maybe that's not even strong enough because he's saying we're knit together with Christ. We're joined to Christ. Through this joining, through what happens to our bodies, we become part of the body of Christ. And maybe the Greek term here for body is key, the word soma. Soma has the idea of a kind of permeable identity within an environment. I think when we think of a body, sometimes 
You know, in the West, we think of a, a kind of individual, independent, self-contained, autonomous. But I don't think that's a proper view of the body, and certainly not the biblical view. In the biblical understanding, the body or the self, and that's really what we're talking about, is viewed as interdependent with the surrounding context, with the other. And of course, Paul is describing there's two possibilities in this other. The body can be attached to either sin and the law. And he's going to equate those two things. Or the body can be attached to Christ. We can become part of the body of Christ indicating that the body mediates and is permeated by the environment of which it is a part. And we all know this is true, that we just were born into a particular culture, were raised in a particular fashion, we absorb that. And what is being pictured, but in Christ, we're taking up a different environment. We're being permeated by a different understanding, a different world. And so the issue is, which is our constituting environment? The law, sin, or Christ? And as Paul employs the term in Romans 6, let me say, I don't know if I've invented a word here, but we can re-environ ourselves. We can create a new environment for ourselves. We can set aside sin, and for Paul... That is synonymous with the law. And the body joined to Christ in his death and resurrection becomes one with him, becomes united with the death and resurrection. Of course, that's important because this is the self-giving of Christ. He gives himself to us, and in the same way that he died and gave himself for us, so too we do this for others, this becomes the movement of our lives. We're no longer subject to sin, but our life takes on the narrative of Christ. Now, we might imagine the problem in the wrong way and say, well, you know, our problem is our bodies. And that's not what Paul is saying. The flesh or the body, you know, we might picture, well, it opposes the spirit. And so, don't we need to get rid of the flesh? maybe cut it off as symbolically and literally is carried out in circumcision, right? It is a sort of cutting off, a shedding of the body symbolically, but also that symbolism is taken quite literally. And Paul explains that this is not a battle that we can win in this way that this kind of antagonism, this oppositional antagonism. But this antagonism describes, and he's going to pick this up in chapter 7, you know, the individual psyche is caught up in the struggle. I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. We all know about that. This antagonism describes the psyche, but I think it also describes every culture. That is, what happens within us is what we do outside of us. That I identify with one thing and I exclude another thing, 
and this is the way I do identity. So we cut ourselves off, we split ourselves to constitute ourselves. We have to build a wall. Maybe we have to create a ghetto, like in Gaza or in Harlem. We must exclude and cut off so as to include and constitute. And the resolution reveals, that is what Paul is describing, I think that we only understand the problem in light of the solution. That is, the way he says it in 6.14, if you look there, we have two choices about our environment. It can be either law or grace. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. Sin thrives in the environment of the law. And what we mean by law is this system of identifying ourselves according to this kind of antagonistic, you know, cultural, nationalistic, ethnic relationship. Where law reigns, or where law is the constituting factor, there is an antagonism, and this is deadly. Romans 7 describes this in terms of the human psyche. The body, or the I. I have the ability to split myself. I can think about myself, thinking about myself, thinking about myself. That is, we can objectify ourselves. And most often this is experienced in a kind of negative self-estrangement. We become our own worst enemies. In our thoughts, in our actions, we become inherently self-punishing. And Paul calls this the body of sin or the body of death. And in this body of sin or body of death, we're pitted against ourselves. The ego, or the I, views its own body, which is us, right? But we view something within us as an alien force. You know, it's colonized us. That's just what Paul says. He says, there are two laws at work in me. In 722-23, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Now I think we need to be careful here because we can easily misunderstand. Is Paul's problem that he cannot align himself with the law of his mind due to the law of his body? That would be a good Greek way of describing the problem. Oh, I just need to use my mind to control my body. Or is Paul's problem the law per se? The manner in which he's having this conflict. The law has overwritten his life and identity. In other words, I don't think it's just a matter of getting the law straight. And we know this because Paul says there's a deception in seven, that sin deceived me in regard to the law. Part of what it must mean to be deceived in this most fundamental sense, you're deceived about reality, right? 
Not reality in some abstract sense, but the reality about you, the reality of the human body, the reality of your identity. The law would negate, it would cut off, it would override the body, which is the problem constituting Paul's description of the body of sin, the body of death. There is this negating, obscuring, or overriding. And this is the dynamic of deception at work in sin. I did not know what I was doing. I didn't understand it. Or if we think in terms of Genesis 3, the naked and ashamed would clothe themselves, maybe in the law, in culture, but this clothing that we would make for ourselves obscures reality. We're hiding. The human body, inclusive of thought and language, is the ground of reality, as we have it. But part of the deception is that we do not have access to the reality of ourselves. And of course, the world, as we are written over or inscribed into a deception. And this deception is the violence that pits us against ourselves and against others. It's the deception which pits Jews against Palestinians. It's the deception which pits Russians against Ukrainians. It's the deception which pits every, you know, this is the way we do identity. And this deception is directly experienced Paul says, as a futile desire, a kind of exponential covetousness, which he links to death. He says this in 7, 7 to 8, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But actually the law never says you shall not covet. He cuts it short. The law says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor... In other words, that's a possibility. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. That is, we're shaped, our desire is shaped by the particular environment, the command the, that permeates the body, such that in particular cultures, particular religions, particular social constraints. It's not so much that they curtail desire, but they deceptively direct it. And particular systems consistently churn out characteristic forms of desire and transgression. Now, at a, at a sort of benign level, this is true culturally. You know, in America, we say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. In Japan, they say the nail that stands out gets pounded down. Very different shaping force, the culture. In America, you know, if the, we're trying to get our kids to eat, we, we say, well, you know, think about those starving kids in Ethiopia. You know, appreciate how lucky you are to be different from them. And in Japan, parents are likely to say, now think about the farmer who works so hard to produce this rice for you. If you don't eat it, he will feel bad for his efforts will have been in vain. 
So every little Japanese kid, they eat every last grain of rice to thank the farmer. There was a small Texas corporation that was seeking to uh, elevate the productivity of its employees. And they said, well, every morning, look in the mirror and say a hundred times before coming to work, I am beautiful. Employees of a Japanese supermarket that was recently opened in New Jersey, they were instructed to begin each day by holding hands and telling each other, oh, you're beautiful. And the point is people are shaped. Who they are is shaped by their attachments, their cultural attachments. And this comes out in a characteristic fashion. And I think that's partly what we're describing or encountering when we talk about the law. We can see this in a kind of crude way in sexual transgression. That is that human desires are shaped and we attach ourselves to these. You know, this is kind of a sad illustration, but presumably a failed Christian teaching is behind the wave of sexual problems that we have, the sexual abuse crisis. But to me, it's a little bit interesting that this a, a crisis, you know, there are characteristic forms of perversion found in Roman Catholicism, evangelicalism, and fundamentalism. That is, that each of these churn out characteristic forms of sexual transgression as kind of part of the necessity of maintaining the status quo. And this may seem counterintuitive, but it is obvious that systems structure desire through law or doctrine in such a way that the transgression supports the desire. And so fundamentalism gives us a steady flow of Jim Bakers and Jimmy Swaggers. Evangelicalism continually churns out people like Bill Hybels. These are all people who have have their own sexual proclivities. In the same way that Catholicism seems to just manufacture pedophiles. By not coming to grips with the characteristic nature of sin, these systems reconstitute it. And it is precisely the forbidden object, the forbidden desire, which shapes desire. The object of desire is that which is relinquished or lost. And this becomes definitive of identity. We know this. There's no Jew without a Gentile. No slave without a master. No male without female. And so too this identity produces a split within the body such that the law of the mind be it that of Roman Catholicism or of fundamentalism is established through the transgression of the flesh the law always has its transgressive support this is the way Paul begins chapter 6 he'll define sin in this way shall we sin that grace may abound doing a particular form of evil so as to produce a particular form of the good. This is the law. This is Paul's definition of sin. 
which indicates that these forms of faith perpetuate rather than identify and dispel sin. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? God forbid. And Paul is giving us the resolution to this. And we can take this corporately or individually. You know, the Jew must kill the Palestinians so as to achieve peace and a legal order. The Palestinians must kill Jews so as to recover a homeland. I must sin so as to establish the law. We must have a revolution so as to establish a constitution. That is, we wipe the slate clean. We become lawless so that we can establish the law. Law perpetuates sin. And where sin is perpetuated, grace is not the foundation. And circumcision, I think, is a good example. It illustrates the compounding of sin in legalism. Circumcision literalizes the laws. You know, in that the desire is supposedly cut away with the foreskin. But unfortunately, this becomes definitive. Circumcision would excise, it would cut off, it would mark the alienating force. It is aimed at bringing the body and mind and the spirit and flesh into alignment by getting lust and desire under control. This is why Jews thought you couldn't be virtuous unless you were circumcised. This is the only way of getting control. It is meant to bring about a correspondence between the body and your know, ethical principles of the law being written over quite literally, marked with the law, marked in the flesh. And of course, that does not resolve the problem. It simply accentuates it. And Paul says it even aggravates it. The symbolic, the law is paid for by cutting, cutting off the removal of the desire of the body, supposedly, but this accentuates the dialectic between the mind and the body. In other words, by curing the problem, we feed into the problem. The body of sin is one that disowns its empirical bearer, you know, the mind or the soul. I want to split off from that. Being written over with a particular sign, interpolated into the law with the body serving as the literal place of inscription. The sign is the means of achieving the signified. You know, this is the problem with circumcision. What is the sign does not fit with what this is signified, which is a change in the person. And we imagine the letter or the sign. You know, the letter is the means to the spirit, or the sign is the means to the signified. The name contains the reality. Language, symbolization, signs. Or if we think of it in terms of the logos. You know, this is the Greek logos with a little l versus Jesus as the logos. This is truth, little t, versus Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The presumption of 
you know, is the one who possesses the law or the one who is written over with the law, is it at, at an advantage? This is literally the discussion in the opening of Romans. But Paul's point is the presumption itself is the problem. It's not simply the Jewish problem, but chapter 7 it is going back to Adam. All who are his descendants. We establish peace in this understanding through war. We establish the law through violence. We establish our homeland by dispossessing others. We establish our constitution through revolution. As Paul describes his experience in Romans 7, there is the I and the not I. And sin, taking advantage of this split, privileges the not I. He says, it is no longer I who do it in chapter 7, verse 20, but sin that dwells within me. That is just participating in this thing. This body of sin or body of death. It may be perceived or experienced maybe as the physical body getting out of hand or out of control. But the reality is it's the self that's out of control. In their experience, in our experience of the self. Or is it the case that I only know myself in and through this kind of antagonistic relationship? How can I know myself as an American if I don't have those people on the other side of the border? Who am I apart from this struggle? This is the entry point into the attachment to binaries, antinomies, dualisms. The sorting out of the I and the not I depends upon the not I. It's at the base of every knowledge of good and evil. We only know the good through the evil. Every circumcision, uncircumcision, law versus no law, Jew versus Greek, or maybe in today's terms, Jews versus Palestinians, or slaves versus master, or male versus female. A discerning of who I am is at stake in this. Or I am at stake in this kind of dialectic. The law being worked out. That is we get caught up in this thing. And it kills us. It consumes us. The exclusion. The antagonism. The inside outside. Of course it's a delusion. It's a lie. This violent means of having a self. Means you do not have a self. This negative understanding. I think it needs to be, we need to go back to baptism. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. We do away with the struggle. We enter in, we die to the struggle. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised into newness of life, to the glory of the Father. We don't walk according to the antagonisms, the antinomies, the dualisms, the inside, the outside of this world. Paul pictures the body of sin as being reduced to the nothing from which it came. We're living under a lie as long as we participate in the violence of this form of identity. And those who follow Christ are very easy to identify because they do not participate in this violence. His description is of the body of death, the body of sin, 
These are put to death in Christ for those who have died in Christian baptism. Baptism is an ontological alternative. Now that may sound strong, but is Jesus ontologically different from death? I think so. He's introduced an ontological alternative in baptism. We're no longer joined to loss, to negation, to death as the means of doing identity, but we're joined to the body of Christ. So let's conclude. This is actually chapter 7, but I think chapter 7 is the conclusion of chapter 6. Chapter 7, verse 4 to 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Step 1. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. There's our two choices. Joined to the law, joined to Christ. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, the law didn't cure it, it aggravated it. These were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And then the alternative, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter, and that we might bear fruit for God. Where in sin and law the subject can only be joined to death, death drive, violence, antagonism, Paul pictures a subject joined to Christ. And only in this way are we freed from male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. And we are joined to become one in Christ, no longer striving violently to be freed from the law as Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.